0: Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Christ is in All, A Runaway Slave Returns Home. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, August 1st, 2010. When my family moved to Moscow on September 7th, 1991, There were only two English-speaking Protestant churches in that city of 10 million people. The Catholic Church had started in 1934, but since we were Presbyterian, we attended the Moscow Protestant Chaplaincy, better known as MPC, that was founded in 1962. My wife taught Sunday school, and for two years I chaired the church council. In response to the economic wreckage that had devastated so many people in those tumultuous days, the church started a soup kitchen program that fed a thousand Russian pensioners every day, six days a week. But the most energizing dimension of the church was its social, cultural, ethnic, and economic diversity. People from about 30 countries worshipped there, with about half the congregation coming from 15 or so African countries. Ambassadors, students, business executives, missionaries, NGO staffers, and even local Russians eager to practice their English all worshiped together. A few years later, the Episcopal Church began its own services. When our pastor visited them for a Christmas service, he brought back this report. Well, the good news is that everyone there was white, just like me. The bad news is that everyone was there was white, just like me. His wry joke illuminates our propensity to exclude others, not like us. And the call of Jesus to do just the opposite, to embrace the other. In this week's epistle, Paul describes a radical alternative to excluding others who aren't like us. For those who follow Jesus, writes Paul in Colossians 3.11, there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Their nearly identical verse in Galatians chapter three twenty eight adds there's neither male nor female. I like to add our modern equivalents no Iraqis or Iranians, no North Koreans or North Vietnamese, no blue bloods or blue collar, no imperialists or terrorists, no gays or straights, no youth or elderly. With a single sentence, Paul repudiates the idea that humanity is fated to exclude one another because of paranoia and stereotypes, that there's an inevitable clash of civilizations, or that class warfare is unavoidable. Contrary to the relentless propaganda that we're force-fed, we don't need to succumb to race-baiting, to gay-bashing, to ethnic slurs, or to demonizing a nation as an enemy, an evil empire, or an axis of evil. Instead of insisting that you are, quote, either with us or against us, the Christian says, I'm unconditionally for you, no matter who you are, where you live, or what you've done. And God is for you far more than I could ever be for you. Paul challenges the believers at Colossae to see every person as a human being who bears, quote, the image of its creator, chapter 3, Christ is all, writes Paul, but Christ is also in all. To the Ephesians, he employed a different but equally subversive metaphor. He says that Christ himself is our peace and that he shattered the many dividing walls of hostility that raise barriers between people. Ephesians 4:11. Paul was not a romantic idealist mouthing pious platitudes. Nor was he blind to the actual social conditions that existed in the churches of his day. He warned the Colossians about what he calls the anger, rage, and malice that destroys communities. He didn't imagine that gender identity was not important, that ethnicity shouldn't be celebrated, or that religion or your mother tongue don't matter. He didn't say that we should repudiate these important markers of human identity with a bland conformity. Instead of repudiation, Paul recommends renewal. Instead of letting these very real and powerful aspects of being human plunge us into identity violence, Paul urges us to renew or transform them. He describes this renewal in several ways. It's like moving from death to life, like putting off your old self and putting on a new self, or like living in a heavenly rather than in an earthly way it's nothing less than a return to or rediscovery of your basic humanity. If you look carefully, you can already see glimpses of this renewed social reality. We see it, for example, among our children. When I taught seminary in Nairobi in the summer of 1990, our family lived in the dormitory with students in their own families. My son was seven at the time, and next to eating the delicious mandazi that we were served at tea time every morning, his favorite part of the day was playing soccer with his Kenyan buddies. We have a team picture in which he's the only white boy among a dozen African kids. When we got home, the first time we showed this picture to our friends, he eagerly identified himself by saying, "'I'm the one in the red shirt.'" I think that was the most colorblind experience I've ever had. For the most part though, our exclusionary categories remain deeply entrenched and unusually powerful in our everyday social relations. Commenting upon Galatians 3:28, St. Augustine observed how they are quote embedded in our mortal, mortal interactions. They characterize much, if not most, of the world today. They also characterize much Christianity. Bob Abernathy, bureau chief for NBC News in Moscow when we lived there, and a fellow parishioner at our church, once remarked to me about the Moscow church. Yes, the diversity is amazing, but it's really limited to the one hour a week here at church. Sad to say, we believers not only acquiesce to these exclusionary tendencies, we often perpetuate them. But Paul envisioned a dramatically different set of social relations for Christians. Toward the end of his letter to the Colossians, there's a fascinating biographical footnote that suggests how their own Christian community grappled with these matters of exclusion and embrace. Paul had written to them from prison, chapter 4, verse 18. In fact, in chapter 2, verse 1, he tells us that he had never even visited the Colossian church. But while in prison, he had befriended and converted a runaway slave named Onesimus, who, as it turns out, was from Colossae. When Paul sent his letter to Colossae with the courier Tychicus, he shocked the church back there by writing that he was also sending the fugitive Onesimus back with Tychicus. He describes Onesimus as, quote, Our faithful and dear brother who is one of you, chapter 4, verse 9. As one commentator puts it, It's a striking comment on how the Apostle's thought has leapt across the barriers of social distinction that he can describe the runaway slave as one of you. And there's more. The shortest book in the Bible is addressed to one Philemon, the slave owner of Onesimus, who also worshipped at the same Colossian church. Paul makes a pun on Onesimus' name to drive home his point. True, he was a runaway slave who ended up in prison, but now in Christ he was Paul's son, his very heart. True, too, he used to be, quote-unquote, useless to Philemon, but now Paul says in Christ he is, quote, useful to both Paul and Philemon. The Greek text Onesimus literally means useful. Philemon has Onesimus back, says Paul, quote, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. And so Paul urged Philemon to embrace his fugitive slave as more than an equal. How might we experience Paul's radical social vision? How do we move from exclusion to embrace? Humanly, I think it's impossible, until in some way we plumb the depths of his insistence in Colossians 3.11 that in some mysterious way Christ is all and Christ is in all. All. For books this week, I reviewed John Lukács, The Legacy of the Second World War, New Haven, Yale, 2010, 201 pages. John Lukács was born in Hungary to a Catholic father and a Jewish mother. The Hungarian army conscripted him into the army during its alliance with Germany. But Lukács deserted and remained in hiding until the end of the war. Although grateful for the defeat of Germany, he was wary of what the Soviets called, quote-unquote, liberation. And so in 1946, he immigrated to the United States and landed a teaching job at Chestnut Hill College in Pennsylvania, a post he held until his retirement in 1994. In over 30 books, many about the so-called great men and great events of the Second World War, Lukács established a reputation as a brilliant, if idiosyncratic, historian. He's always described himself as a quote-unquote reactionary rather than a conservative, a patriot but not a nationalist. He considers populism as the worst threat to traditional civilization and values. Lukács describes this book as a history about the history of World War II. In particular, he's interested in the gigantic triangular struggle between parliamentary democracies in Britain, America, and parts of Europe, Soviet communism, and then German nationalism, and the remarkable fact that it required an unnatural partnership between the first two to conquer the third Indeed, Germany's threat was so severe that it took perhaps 500 million people from America, Britain, Europe, and Russia to defeat 80 million National Socialists. In six chapters, Lukács explores six questions about the place of the war, the division of Europe, Hitler, the role of Heisenberg and Bohr in building the atomic bomb, the American war plan called Rainbow Five, and the exact origins and nature of the Cold War. This is a book for specialists and not a general readership. Lukács writes with a brilliant knowledge and assimilation of the sources, nuance, and complexity. But there are still gems that non-specialists can glean, like his reflections on the importance of nationalist ideas and ideals over material and economic factors. Or how in October 1944, Churchill flew to Moscow, where he and Stalin carved up a European map in a matter of minutes. About the possible recrudescence of Hitler's reputation. Of how, fortunately, the Rainbow Five war planners rejected public opinion and prioritized victory over Germany Germany instead of Japan. And, perhaps most importantly, for our own time, the lurking dangers of extreme nationalisms. The author is John Lukacs, The Legacy of the Second World War. For film this week, I review The Atom Smashers from 2008. I can't imagine waking up in the morning and not thinking about trying to find the Higgs-Boson particle. Gush is a particle physicist at Fermilab outside of Chicago. And how we'll find it? It's fantastically exciting. Even people like me who don't understand the physics can still catch that infectious love for science. This documentary film introduces Fermilab, built in 1969 about 30 miles west of Chicago. Until recently, its four-mile-long tunnel called the Tevatron was the largest atom smasher in the world. In particular, the film introduces you to the scientists at Fermi who are looking for the Elusive-Higgs boson particle, the holy grail of particle physics, which, if it actually exists, would explain much about the nature of reality that we currently don't know. But there's what's delicately called competitive collaboration with the new Large Hadron Collider in Switzerland, which recently opened at seven times the energy. The last third of the film examines the deplorable cuts to basic science under the Bush budgets of March 2006 and December 2007, and how they devastated Fermilab in particular, and American experimental physics in general. That's a depressing commentary about the value that our government places on basic research title of the film from 2008, The Atom Smashers. And finally this week, we continue our series of poems by John Berryman, who lived from 1914 to 1972, Eleven Addresses to the Lord. This is the tenth of his Eleven Addresses to the Lord. Fearful, I peer upon the mountain path where once your shadow passed. Limner of the clouds up their fantastic guesses. I am afraid I never until now confessed. I fell back in love with you, Father, for two reasons. You were good to me and a delicious author, rational and passionate. Come on me again. As twice you came to Azarias in Misael, President of the Brethren, our mild assemblies inspire. And bother the priest not to be dull. Keep us week long in order. Love my children, my mother far and ill, far brother, my spouse. Oil all my turbulence, as at thy dictation I sweat out my wayward works. Father Hopkins said the only true literary critic is Christ. Let me lie down exhausted, content with that. Eleven Addresses to the Lord, number 10, by John Berryman. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, August the 1st, 2010. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.